Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Over the past few months, a major humanitarian disaster has dominated the news. 60 million human beings are currently displaced refugees of violence and extreme poverty, the largest number ever recorded by the United Nations. They are today's most vulnerable and in-need people on the planet, where countless families are hurled into perilous journeys. So how is the media drawing attention to this deep crisis for our sisters and brothers around the world? Hungary has been overwhelmed by the flood of migrants. As you've got a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean. Now the same thing is happening in Europe. Countries are being overrun by migrants, mostly Muslims. If they just come to moderate, tolerant Europe, to someday make it less moderate and tolerant. I take uh, ISIS at its word when they said uh, in their own words that we'll use and exploit the refugee uh, crisis to infiltrate. Those are reportedly Muslim refugees on a train in Europe chanting Allah Akbar or God is great. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that any of those people are terrorists or in any way affiliated with a terror group, but it does highlight just how many of these refugees who are fleeing violence in Iraq and Syria are Muslim. Dripping with Islamophobia and racist hysteria, millions are being dehumanized as terrorists and enemy invaders. Words like swarm and human tide are used to describe the plight of hundreds of thousands of human beings risking everything just for a chance at life. Probably wouldn't have so much hate if they just spent one day in their shoes. Imagine being forced to flee your home, leave your life and all your belongings behind. War has ejected you from your country. Whatever savings you have has to go to the traffickers who smuggle your family by stuffing them into a boat with hundreds of other people and pushed into the open sea, not knowing if you'll be alive by daylight. The Guardian reports the harrowing story of one Syrian refugee, Hashem al-Soki. Several people are sprawled on top of him, and there's possibly another layer above them. Dozens are crammed into this wooden dinghy. If anyone tries to shift, a smuggler kicks them back into place. They don't want the crammed boat to overbalance and then sink. Now that boat is who knows where, bobbing along in the pitch darkness, lurching in the waves, somewhere in the southeastern Mediterranean. And its passengers are screaming. An hour passes. They reach a second boat, a bigger one, and then a third, bigger still. At each new vessel, the smugglers toss them over the side like their bags of potatoes. Their clothes drenched, they shiver, and they retch. The person squeezed to Hashem's left vomits all over him. He looks up and realizes everyone's clothes are caked in other people's vomit. Some don't ever make it to the boat. One Syrian refugee, Abu Adnan, was forced to stay in a room with 30 people for 20 days, waiting for the smugglers to direct them. When they finally did, they were robbed, beaten, and raped. Hundreds of thousands of people attempt the treacherous and dehumanizing journey every year to escape death in their collapsed countries. A horrifying amount die in the process. It's hard to comprehend the scope of the tragedy when you look at the sheer numbers of people losing their lives. In August of this year, 200 people drowned when a refugee boat capsized off the coast of Libya. Just four months prior, in April, another overcrowded boat sunk, 
killing 400 migrants fleeing violence in Libya. Not even a week later, a devastating 850 people perished after another boat capsized in Libyan waters, marking the single worst disaster involving refugees traveling across the Mediterranean. These tragedies are anything but isolated, and the bodies keep piling up. According to the International Organization for Migration, in 2014, up to 3,072 migrants are believed to have died in the Mediterranean, compared with an estimate of 700 in 2013. Globally, IOM estimates that at least 4,077 migrants died in 2014, and at least 40,000 since the year 2000. Many deaths occur in remote regions of the world and are never recorded. Some experts have suggested for every dead body discovered, there are at least two others that are never recovered. 2015 will break the record of deaths at sea by hundreds, if not more. According to the UN Refugee Agency, at the time of this broadcast, over 690,000 refugees have crossed the Mediterranean, a 40% rise from the previous year. But it's not just the possibility of drowning at sea. It's also suffocating on land. In August, 71 refugees' suffocated bodies were found stuffed like cattle inside of a trailer truck in Austria, callously left by human smugglers profiting off the exodus. Trying to avoid the open waters, hundreds of people are even perilously riding bikes to Europe across the frozen Arctic. However, crossing borders is not a difficult journey for all migrants. I spoke to a Tusa Abrahamian, journalist and author of The Cosmopolites, a book about the lucrative market of global citizenship. There is a very different class of individuals who have a significantly easier time crossing borders than the migrants and the refugees that we're hearing about, and those are the ones called ultra-high net worth individuals. Um, there are a number of immigration programs that exist pretty much tailor-made for this group of people who tend to have lots and lots and lots of money. Um, pretty much every Western country, every developed Western country has a program where uh, wealthy people can either invest money in order to obtain a residence and work visa or buy citizenship outright. Um, Cyprus and Malta are two countries that allow people to buy citizenship outright. It's not a very easy process, you have to jump through some hoops, you have to wait some time, but ultimately at the end of the, the journey uh, you've got a European passport uh, with which you can do pretty much whatever you want. And it's not just people, it's banks too. Talk about entities like HSBC and the ability to move capital freely. Well, that's sort of the paradox of globalization. Um, capital can move freely uh, wherever it likes uh, without any visa restrictions. No one's asking dollars where they're coming from unless in very specific situations if they're, you know, from blood minerals or from, uh, from frozen assets. Um, but every time a person crosses a border, they have to get a stamp in their passport. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the paradox. It's very easy for money to travel. It's very, very hard for people to travel. There is the stereotype of the migrant as being dependent, being needy, not fitting in, whereas rich people, they can fit in anywhere because there's usually a Ritz-Carlton that they can go hang out at or a fancy restaurant that they can spend a lot of money at. Of course, the crisis is nothing new. It's been going on for decades. Why is everyone paying attention now? In a sense, it's not a bad thing that this has made its way to uh, the, West, the wealthy European countries because until, until people started showing up uh, in, in Germany, France, uh, Western Europe, no one was really talking about the crisis in these terms. So if there's something good to take out of it all, it's that people are paying attention to the root cause of the problem, and that is the war in Syria.
With all the attention, how much is Europe bearing the burden of this great crisis? As a whole, 85% of refugees in the world do not go to the EU. When refugees flee their own countries, most wind up with their immediate neighbors. Of the 15 million Africans displaced, most all stay in Africa. For the largest refugee population, Syrians, the majority are internally displaced, but nearly 4 million were living abroad by the end of 2014. So with all the fuss in Europe, let's see which countries are having to deal with this influx. 2 million are living in Turkey, over 1 million reside in Lebanon, 630,000 in Jordan, and a quarter million in Iraq, in stark contrast to around 400,000 residing in all of Europe. Amazingly, only four years ago, Syria housed 1.3 million refugees, over 6% of the country's population at the time, and three times as many refugees as all of Europe today. Its open borders policy made it a destination for hundreds of thousands of refugees, primarily Iraqis and many Palestinians. While some countries in the region have been willing to help their neighbors, others have shut the door. Six noble Arab allies, the Royal Dictatorship of Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain have offered no resettlement to Syrian refugees. Israel has also insisted it will accept zero refugees, opting to build an 18-mile fence alongside Jordan instead. Instead of helping refugees, European countries are building huge fences to block refugee routes. These police state measures do nothing but cause dangerous diversions, spilling more blood into the sea. In 2012, Greece built a giant razor wire fence to block refugees. Those cruelly diverted were then blocked by Bulgaria's new security wall. Hungary then closed its border with Croatia, having already blocked its border with Serbia. Almost every country in the region has ramped up border security or installed emergency measures to block travel altogether. If this death-defying journey was not enough, only more horrors await at their destination. Refugee centers face extreme overcrowding, where people are herded and packed like animals. In Czechoslovakia, human rights officials have called the shelter's conditions worse than prison. In Austria, intolerable, dangerous, and inhumane. In Kos, Greece, police have been sending refugees to an open stadium with no hygiene facilities or shelter. Babies and small children sit baking for days in the sun for a chance to be registered. And when people start getting out of hand, according to authorities, they attack them with fire extinguishers. Many women flee their countries alone. Once they migrate, their vulnerability is preyed upon. From Jordan to Turkey, female refugees are routinely sexually harassed and exploited, forced into prostitution or marriages. But the most vulnerable affected by this disaster are rarely heard. 24,000 unaccompanied minors, or children with no guardian, applied for asylum in Europe in 2014 and what human rights officials have described as a particularly striking and worrying characteristic of the current crisis. Because children are guaranteed resources, European governments engage in a variety of dehumanizing and abusive tactics to verify their adolescence, like thoroughly inspecting refugees' genitalia pigmentation, or forcing them into claustrophobic spaces that re-inflict their trauma. The politicians pushing these anti-immigrant policies and proudly proclaiming their anti-Muslim bigotry 
are gaining ground. In Slovakia, the government has refused the integration of Syrian Muslims into the country, saying they, quote, won't like it there. Hungary's prime minister said his country was being, quote, overrun with refugees, attacking them for being Muslim instead of Christian. Although the European Commission has only called on the Czech Republic to take in around 1,300 refugees in a population of 11 million, its prime minister ludicrously warned immigrants may bring about the collapse of the entire EU. Germany's neo-Nazi National Democratic Party, responsible for organizing protests and arsons at homes of refugees, is gaining footholds in government. On October 19, around 20,000 marched in a fascist, anti-immigrant rally. In Sweden, the far-right party is now the biggest, primarily because of its anti-immigrant stance. Denmark's anti-immigrant party also made surprising gains in recent elections. And just this week, Poland's far-right Law and Justice Party, which opposes all immigration, won a total majority in Parliament and controlled the government. Britain's UK Independence Party, France's National Front, Austria's Freedom Party, and other neo-Nazi groups have surged since the peaked coverage of the refugee crisis in August. But support for anti-immigrant slogans translates into real terrorism, like the recent series of arson attacks against refugee centers across Europe. Off the coast of Greece, armed vigilantes have taken intercepting and dismantling the boats before they reach the islands, trying to kill everyone on board. But with all the hatred towards the victims of war and poverty, those who created it are protected from criticism. The news today is bursting about Hillary Clinton's Libya scandal, except the real scandal isn't on the news. The US NATO bombing of Libya was under the complete farce of protecting civilians. The intervention to save lives resulted in the deaths of at least 30,000 Libyans. In 2010, 2,039 refugees left Libya. By 2014, as a direct result of the NATO war, an estimated 1 million Libyans were forced to flee. Entire cities, once flourishing, were destroyed by US and NATO bombs. The US conducted tens of thousands of strikes on civilian targets, including residential areas, government buildings, water supply, and electrical facilities. The freedom fighters who the U.S. insisted should ascend to power have thrown the country into sectarian disaster with no functioning government and widespread ongoing violence. But as Libyans fled, oil giants triumphantly bragged on the cover of Bloomberg just after the sick lynching of Muammar Gaddafi. The country that once had the highest human development index in all of Africa finally became an open market to be devoured. Only the leaders of the operation that destroyed Libya and the financial giants looting it can be considered responsible for the one million refugees. Not only are they completely unaccountable, but they boast about it in front of the world. Afghan people make up the second largest refugee population in Europe and the world. For the past 35 years, millions of U.S. taxpayer dollars helped make Afghanistan a leading country of origin for refugees, giving a lifeline of money and weapons to extremist religious groups that ended up conquering the country as the Taliban. In 2001, millions of Afghans began fleeing their homes, fearing the wrath of the U.S. military. 
People who had absolutely nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks were carpet-bombed and invaded. In Afghanistan, 3.7 million have been made refugees since the U.S. invasion and occupation. The government, backed by the U.S., who U.S. soldiers are asked to die to keep in power, are corrupt warlords of the worst kind, responsible for violence and theft, causing more refugees. After having the great misfortune of being born in a strategically valuable region of the world, the people of Afghanistan have been trampled into one of the poorest countries in the world, and the second most impoverished in all of Asia. The decision by the U.S. elites to keep a guaranteed magnet for war is a sentence of fear and danger on all innocent Afghans who happen to live where the U.S. decides to plant a base. While the U.S. government is spending $218 million a day on the war in Afghanistan, it is exempt from responsibility or compensation for the misery it's created. A large number of EU countries, especially ones who complain about refugees, have also sent military support for the occupation. Since the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq in 2003, 5 million Iraqis, an insane 20% of the population, became refugees, fleeing gross human rights violations. On top of the Bush administration launching an illegal invasion and occupation of Iraq, it also unleashed WMDs against a civilian population. It's well documented the use of white phosphorus, cluster bombs, and other internationally banned munitions on civilians. The U.S. also terrorized the population with its torture chambers. According to a 2006 UN report, bodies of dead detainees often bared signs of severe torture, including acid-induced injuries and burns caused by chemical substances, missing skin, broken bones, missing eyes, missing teeth and wounds caused by power drills and nails. Stories of these horrors alone would lead to thousands of people fleeing the country out of fear of being arbitrarily arrested and tortured. The U.S. occupation also intentionally divided Iraq along ethno-sectarian lines. This forced shredding of the country is the main cause of today's ISIS disaster. Millions fled this horror. An unparalleled one million Iraqis lost their lives during an eight-year slaughter. All of these are war crimes under international law. Clearly, the U.S. government should be responsible for reparations for Iraq and its besieged people. Instead, there's no accountability. Iraqi refugees live in peril, while the criminals who put them there retire to country clubs. And many of the countries who join this massive crime against humanity are now complaining that there are refugees from Iraq. For Syria, there's an unimaginable scale of refugees, around 11.6 million since 2011 half of its entire population. A brutal civil war infused with arms, cash, and foreign fighters has killed over 250,000 people and left the country on the brink of collapse. As such an enormous source of war refugees, the so-called leader of the free world should be making a peaceful resolution in Syria its top priority. But instead, the U.S. has made very clear that its top priority in Syria is to overthrow its government. Taking a cue from Libya, the U.S. and its partners in crime have been dumping billions in money and weapons to armed rebel groups. One problem, nearly all U.S. supplied arms, money, and trained fighters have ended up with ISIS. 
the very group the U.S. is supposed to be fighting in Syria. The moderate rebels they hope to place in power are now completely eclipsed by, and sometimes aligned with, the forces that instead grew to power players, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Still, the U.S. insists that overthrowing the government is a top priority. Defeating ISIS and ending the war, they say, can only happen by overthrowing Assad. What they don't say is who would take his place. The Syrian people suffer unimaginable misery as the empire dumps money and guns into a nonsensical plan, allowing its allies in crazy ideas to strengthen ISIS. Its policy of regime change can only succeed in creating more war and chaos on the ground. The World Bank and IMF can cause enough despair to mirror a war zone. Among the top refugee countries, six out of 10 are in Africa, including Somalia, Sudan, and Eritrea. After liberating themselves from centuries of European colonialism, in the 60s and 70s, Africa's small farmers became self-sufficient and started exporting hundreds of thousands of pounds of food. But the World Bank and IMF's structural adjustments forced on the people of Africa led to a period of low investment, increased unemployment, and reduced social spending. Profit-making measures for big corporations decimated Africa's agricultural system. Today, the continent is known for famine and hunger. It must import 25% of its food. Refugees from Eritrea seeking asylum in the EU increased threefold in 2014. The main thing they're fleeing is the soaring cost of food. I sat down with Professor Saskia Sassen, sociologist and expert in human migration. I think that we have had many different phases in the history of migration. And for a very long time, the migrant was the person who was strong, willful, maybe an idealist, who went in search of a better life, leaving a home behind, a place to return to. The difference today is that what, yes, it looks, there is also that element, the migrant, the refugee, but there is a deeper, darker story in the making, which is, for one, there is no place to go back. To keep on using the language of migration in this circumstance, doesn't help. It's a quick shorthand, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a good word. But I think that we're seeing, in my reading, the beginning of a whole new phase that really has to do, I mean, one language I like to use is with a massive loss of habitat. They are not migrants in search of a better life. These are people in search of better life the bare essentials of life. You know, there is so much despair, so much loss of options in, these, in some of these countries. And, and the United States had some role in that, you know, by militarizing conflicts, the way they have handled the drug trade. So in the case of Central America, it's a desperate fleeing. And that is not a migrant. That is something else. A lot of people know the terms neoliberalism and globalization, but how have these policies specifically exacerbated mass migration and eviscerated the economy over the last 30 years? Economic interventions by powerful actors from all over the world, eh, in particular countries, have eliminated survival options. We're talking very modest livelihoods, but they were real lives. 
you know? So for instance, if you consider, this is for me a big issue in this whole story, that in the last five years, about 220 million hectares of land were bought, especially in Africa and in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, by about, or acquired, you know, is the proper language here, but they really were bought by about 15 governments and by about 100 firms. What happens when these actors acquire rural land? For starters, they evict all the smallholders, the small agricultural. These people are pretty poor and modest lives, but they had real lives. So they are thrown out. When they are thrown out, they also throw out sort of cultures of knowledge about how to make earth have a long life mm -hmm. rather than killing it with pesticides and fertilizers. Secondly, they evict faunas and floras. A plantation means you go back to ground, ground level, and then you deploy so many toxic elements that even those who are not affected directly feel that their land is poisoned, their water is poisoned by too many you know, chemicals. So it is an enormous shadow effect besides the thing itself. And how have major financial institutions like the World Bank and IMF cemented these policies? I do think that these restructuring programs actually have destroyed a lot of these local economies. And I've always been stunned by a fact that is rarely mentioned. If you look at what was happening in the 60s, when, especially Africa, when the colonial wars of independence succeed and you have a whole new generation, brilliant people among them, I mean really great people, um, most of the foreign investment that then comes after the wars of independence and you establish an autonomous state, invested in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Manufacturing is the one sector in our economies that produces a vast prosperous working class and a vast middle class. <clears throat> Today, all of that is gone. Today, most of the investment is basically in land, in mining, in water grabs, you know. That means that a lot of the wealth is sucked out and it engenders a very rich elite that doesn't have to do anything to be rich. It just happens that they are the elite in a country that has a lot of natural resources. Now, in that whole story, there are these massive loans that were made to all these countries, loans that those countries could never have paid. The origins of that, again, something that is rarely mentioned, comes from OPEC. When OPEC, I mean, this goes back eh, to the 70s, when, when uh, this extraordinary event happens where the oil-producing countries make a cartel, and suddenly raise the prices of oil, there was a vast amount of cash that goes to the oil-producing countries. Now, they could have chosen to put all that cash literally beneath their beds, and we would not have had all kinds of things that happened, but they didn't. They gave it to the big Western corporate banks. Now, a bank at that point, especially when finance was not as developed, a bank makes its money by selling the money. There was a surplus of cash, so they went and literally forced a lot of countries, also in Latin America, to take on these loans. And that is the beginning, really, of this extraordinary indebtedness. That indebtedness also makes for leaders, you know, who they are like enslaved to this regime. I have all the figures, and they have spent more money on paying the debt than on education, on health. So that was, and then comes this predatory elite linked to the fact that you have natural wealth. It couldn't be a worse mix. 
Not everyone in Europe has reacted to the struggle of refugees with bigotry and hate. From London to Copenhagen, tens of thousands of Europeans have taken to the streets in pro-immigrant solidarity rallies, welcoming incoming refugees with open arms. Despite the growing racist vitriol, huge numbers are rejecting the anti-immigrant tide, opening their communities to new arrivals. Those of us in the U.S. can show our solidarity with refugees, too, by standing up to the government directly responsible for so many millions of them. We shouldn't feel isolated from the crisis. We have a unique responsibility as citizens of the empire to demand accountability for the imperial projects launched in our name that kill, maim, destroy, and uproot millions of lives around the world. The borders have already been wide open to the biggest financial institutions through free trade agreements and redevelopment. It's time they, too, are held accountable. The poor and oppressed people who are forced to migrate, for whatever reason, did not choose this world of violence, oppression, and exploitation. They're not criminals for trying to live. They're heroes. No matter how many walls are built, the human will has proven it will exhaust every avenue to survive against even the most impossible odds. And we can help our brothers and sisters around the world by fighting bigotry with solidarity. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.